He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our only infallible rule for faith and practice, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glimpse it gives us into the living word, even Christ Jesus, our older brother, your son, our Lord. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Have you ever noticed how there are different kinds of questions? I mean, theoretically, what a question is, is an honest effort to gain information from somebody else, but not all questions are created equal. Sometimes a question is not really a question at all, right? Sometimes what a, a question is, it's actually an attempt to kind of lead you in a certain direction, trying to push you in a certain way. Like just a second ago when I asked you, have you ever noticed how there's different types of questions, right? I'm, I'm trying to lead you into the knowledge of that, not really asking you if you have noticed it. I'm not so concerned with getting an answer from you as I am with pushing you in that direction. Or Sometimes there are those questions which are not questions at all. They're really more of an accusation or, or a criticism more than a question. Perhaps you've, you've had this situation arise before. Maybe there is you and another person living in your home, and it's just the two of you, and you had a piece of cherry pie that you were saving to have as a snack. You put it in the refrigerator. And then you open up the refrigerator one day to have your long-awaited delicious piece of cherry pie, and it's not there. And you ask the only other person that is in the house with you, what happened to my cherry pie, right? As if there's possibility that somebody broke in and stole it and took it away, or, or maybe it just vanished into thin air, or you know what happened, they either ate it, or perhaps threw it away, but they did something with it, right? Or perhaps even more directly, this is the one that immediately sprang to mind when I was thinking about this uh, this week. Uh, you're going out to dinner for a nice dinner with your family. You know, perhaps if you're a man, you've put on a coat and a tie. Uh, if you're a woman, maybe you've put on a skirt and a nice blouse. You're waiting for your children, and you're Child comes in and he's wearing jeans with holes torn in them and a t-shirt that looks like he got it out of the laundry, right? 
And you say, are you wearing that? Of course, you're not asking if he's wearing that. You know he's wearing that. He actually has it on right now. What you're actually saying is, you're not wearing that, right? You're, you're, you're accusing him of doing something wrong. You're criticizing what he's doing. You're actually demanding that he do something different. Here in chapter 2, we see a series of questions, and we come to see that, that most of them are not really honest questions. Remember back in chapter 1, Mark looked mainly at the authority that Jesus had. It was a, an authority that was uh, so absolute, so multifaceted, so supreme in every way that it's kind of shocking that he would be questioned at all. And yet, here Mark has changed the focus. We, we see that we're presented with this series of questions. First in verse 7, which we covered last week. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Today, in verse 16, the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, sees eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? If we move on in the chapter a little bit, we'll see John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus are not, and the people came and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Then finally, on a Sabbath, they're walking through a grain field, and they're plucking heads of grain, and the Pharisees say to them, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Today, we're going to look specifically at that question in verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and with sinners? For them, it really wasn't a question, right? It was an accusation. But for us today, it legitimately is a question. We, we really want to consider why he does eat with tax collectors and sinners. And if we're going to consider that, the first thing we need to do is actually understand what that phrase means when he says tax collectors and sinners. Because in verse 13, it talks about how, how he went out beside the sea, the crowd was coming to him, he passed by, and Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was sitting at the tax booth. And Levi is almost un universally understood to be the same person as Matthew that we find uh, elsewhere in Scripture, the one who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we're not sure if uh, Levi slash Matthew had his name changed from one to the other by Jesus, as sometimes happens, or if he simply had two names, as also sometimes happens. It's really irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But what is relevant to us here is that he's sitting in the tax booth. He is a tax collector. And I don't suppose that at any time in any culture that being a tax collector was a really popular thing, right? I don't think anybody's ever said, you know, I, I wish I was more popular. Maybe if I get a job with the IRS, I could be really popular. Everybody would love me then, right? No, that's probably not the case today. And it was even worse for tax collectors in the context of Jesus' place and time. What's being discussed here is, is a tariff or an excise tax that would be collected on goods as they passed along this road, almost like a, a toll road kind of. And, and, and these goods as they passed through would be taxed. It would be the, the Romans that ultimately were receiving this tax that were, were charging it because throughout the empire they 
they were going to get theirs. Uh, but, but it was a real hassle to collect the taxes, it often is. So what they would basically do is they would, they would sell franchises to people who would become the franchise owner and they would collect the tax, perhaps hiring people to do it for them. Well, why would somebody spend money to become a tax collector? Well, the reason is because not only would they collect the tax that would be sent off to the coffers in Rome, they would also collect a little bit extra or maybe a lot extra. Actually, whatever they felt they could get was pretty much what they would collect. And so it would be a, a job that would be highly lucrative, even if it were for the benefit of an evading foreign power that was a pagan power even above that on the backs of the people that were the people of God. Well, as a result, tax collectors were social outcasts. No less than the leper that we looked at uh, in chapter one. Uh, they were a disgrace to their family, a disgrace to the nation, a disgrace to the community. Uh, they were not welcomed in the homes of respectable people and respectable people surely would not be found in their homes. They were, they were considered to be so disreputable that they weren't even uh, able to serve as witnesses or to give testimony in a legal case because they, they were just considered to be liars and cheats. And so what good is their word? They were even banned from the synagogue, not allowed to come in and worship with the people of God. They were persona non grata in the religious community. And so we read in verse 14 that Jesus passed by and saw Levi and he said, follow me. Levi rose and followed him. Luke tells us, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. We need to realize right, right now at this point, the, the bond that existed uh, between uh, a person's work and their identity at that time. Uh, we still have this to a degree, right? If you meet somebody you've never met before, you're, you're likely to ask their name perhaps. And then the First or second question after that oftentimes will be, well, what do you do? Right? What's your job? What, what, what's that part of your identity? But in our culture, it's a very fluid thing. It can change many times. I just take my example. Uh, when I was in college, I studied to be a journalist. And shortly before graduating, I decided I wasn't going to do that. I, I decided to go in a different direction, wandered a little bit uh, before uh, taking a job in the business world on what was the, a management track. Uh, after a few years of doing that, I actually switched over to a sales position, did that for a while, uh, then ended up actually going to seminary, became a pastor, and here I've been for the last 16 or 17 years now. Uh, it's, uh, it's you know, a very fluid thing. Uh, many people are even more so than me, more transitory than that. But in the world that Mark writes about, that was not the case, right? You, you were highly likely to do whatever the family business was, right? If dad was a fisherman, you were probably going to be a fisherman. And you'd be a fisherman until the day you died. And if you were, or if dad were a carpenter, right? 
you probably were going to be a carpenter and be a carpenter until the day you died. Whatever the business was, that's simply what you did. And that's what makes it all the more astonishing that Levi, just at the, at the beckon of Jesus saying, follow me, he would get up and leave that all behind and follow this, this rabbi, this teacher. Now, he probably had had some interaction with him or was at least somewhat familiar with him, but, but he knew that, that this was the person that he needed to be following. Such was the call of Christ on his life. And such, brothers and sisters, is the call of Christ on our lives as well. It is such that we need to be following him. In John 8, we read that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? So, so do you want to walk in darkness or do you want to walk in light? It's a pretty simple question. Right? It's nice and easy, but perhaps it's not so easy because it is a costly thing. Jesus also says in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? That it's a daily decision we have to make to die to ourselves if we are to follow him, but it is worth it. For Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. I hope you heed the call of Jesus on your life, just as Levi did. We see in verse 15 that Jesus reclined at the table in his house. And given the fact that tax collectors were seen as they were culturally, you can understand why those opposing Jesus would ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We come to our first fill-in-the-blank on our outline that's in your bulletins. is because they are the only people who actually exist. Right? That's one of the reasons Jesus dines with people, because other, with, with sinners and tax collectors, because, because if he weren't dining with sinners, he'd be dining alone. Right? There are no other options. We are all sinners. We are all broken. We are all flawed. The Pharisees, uh, they, they specifically meant in saying this, that somebody was a sinner, they meant that they were someone who didn't keep the law precisely as they thought it ought to be kept. One commentator put it this way, he said, in fact, we're not far from expressing the truth when we say that in the eyes of the Pharisees, all non-Pharisees were sinners, right? And uh, you remember what, what Randy said just a moment ago in, in, in uh, introducing our Unison Scripture reading about how the whole law is summed up what in those two words, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole law. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees thought they knew the law better than the lawgiver did. And so they, they had a complex system of laws that included not just what the law said, but their interpretations of all the commands and their, their applications of those commands. And even we see in the story of the Good Samaritan where the priest and the Levite didn't cross, they crossed the road to, to not go near the, the man who was half dead in the ditch, right? And many suggest, well, they probably did that because, because they didn't want to come into contact with, with somebody who was dead because they would have been ceremonially unclean at that point, right? And their ceremonial status was more important than their love of their neighbor. Such was the case with the Pharisees. They'd focus on the minutia and not get after the heart of the law. Well, we shouldn't 
be as they are because they would, they would lose the whole heart of the law and then they'd separate from those who didn't see things the way they were. They'd, they'd keep them away. We can't be anywhere near them. What we're called to do though as the people of God is to actually be salt and light in the world. We should be interacting with people who disagree with us, who don't share our worldviews, who, who think about things differently than we do, who don't trust Jesus or even believe that God exists. We should be interacting with them as our neighbors, as, as those who are friends, as those who are part of our, our social circles, as it were. We need to share something with them. We need to share Jesus with them. We need to share the truth of the gospel with them. Is it possible that, that uh, the proximity to those who see things radically different than you will leave you open to possibly being criticized by some? Yes, right? They, they might say of you, why, why are you the type of person who's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? And if they say that of you, you'll be in good company because that's exactly what they said of Jesus, right? Uh, God, though, does not see as man sees he looks at the heart, right? I've got a friend named Keith Simon who I saw this quote from just the other day. He said, if churches reach people far from God, they will always be vulnerable to the charge that they have attendees who aren't as committed to Jesus as they should be. But didn't Jesus come for the lost? Weren't we once far from God? Be careful of churches full only of serious Saints, it's a good word. We need to be around non-believers because how else are they to come to call upon the name of Jesus? Right, Paul says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, not just the, the really good people who call upon the Lord, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he goes on to say, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are said as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. You, my brothers and sisters, and I are to be those who bring good news to those who need to hear it. Let us be those who share the good news of Jesus. Share it in our words and share it in our deeds. The second answer to the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, is because they are in need of something that only Jesus can provide right? They're in need of something that only Jesus can provide. And that's why he's there, because he's concerned about them, not just about himself. For Jesus came for the dying. That's that subheading under that. He came for the dying, the sick, the broken, the dying. That is all of us, right? We, we are all in that status after Genesis 3. Sin enters the world. The world falls and is broken, and we are too. We need to be fixed. We need to be repaired. Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came, to call a, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Imagine, if you will, that you need, you, you call your doctor and you said to him, uh, hello doctor, I'd, I'd like to come see you. Uh, is it possible? And he says, well, sure. Come on over this afternoon. I always enjoy our times together. It's always wonderful to spend time chatting with you. And you say, well, well, yes, it is, but, but I've got this cough. 
and, and I've been suffering from kind of a lethargy and I've got this headache that just won't go away. And he says, oh, well, well, then maybe you should wait until you're better before we get together. You'd say, well, that's not much of a doctor, right? <laughs> he, he's not interested in seeing me if I'm sick. He only wants to see me if I'm well. Jesus is the great physician, right? He, he has come to heal the sick, to make them well. Jesus came not only for the sick, though, to cure our ills at the deepest levels. Jesus came for the dead. That's that next subheading. He came for the dead. Not just those who are physically dead, but even more so those who are spiritually dead, right? That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, right? You were dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? If we're made alive by God's grace, not because we've done any number of good works, not because we've followed any number of laws, not because we've accomplished anything on our own, but rather because by the grace of God, Christ Jesus has died for our sins, and he has paid the penalty, and he has offered us the life that only he can offer. You know, I thought about including this, this morning hymn number 435. Perhaps we should have. It's a little unfamiliar, so I didn't. Uh, but the hymn is called, Not What My Hands Have Done. And, and part of that song goes, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear this awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease the weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit Free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other work will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me through. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of God's grace in Christ Jesus. This is the message that we all need applied to our lives and that those who have not heard it and who have not surrendered to it need to hear as well. There are those who are separated from God for any number of reasons, right? It can be we're separated from God because we think we have too many sins, that our sins are too great, but remember that God's grace is greater than all our sin, right? Those who... Those who crucified Jesus, Peter, Peter said in Acts 3, right, you, to them, you, you denied the Holy One and the Righteous One. You killed the author of life. But then he, he goes on to say, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If those who crucified Christ Jesus, who killed the very author of life, can find forgiveness for their sins, so too can you 
There is no sin that is so great as to separate you from God in Christ Jesus. But the other separation is for those who don't think they have a need, right? They're separated from God because they, in essence, have been inoculated to him. They think they've, they've got it all figured out. They're all taken care of. They don't, they don't need him. But see, we need to realize the church is not a club for the holier than thou to revel in their innate goodness. The church is a place for sinners to come to, to celebrate the grace of God that is theirs in Christ Jesus. And that's the final reason that we see that Jesus hangs out with sinners, that he dines with tax collectors, right? It's because they are often more aware of their need, right? If you think you've got everything all taken care of, if you think you've got your act all straightened out, you think you are good with God on your own merits, you were wrong. For as good as you may be, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. It's interesting, in Luke 18, Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself said thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He focused on what? Two things. He focused on all the bad things that other people do and all the good things that he did. That's all that he saw. But Jesus went on. He said, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see what was different with the tax collector? He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was dead in his sin. He knew he could not save himself. And those who are labeled as sinners are often far more likely to have that realization. So as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. To eat with somebody was a sign of fellowship, a sign of intimacy, a sign of, of togetherness. And that's why when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did so around a table. The idea was, was a shared meal, uh, uh, wherein we experience fellowship and, and intimacy with him and with one another. We need to remember that what we do in communion is far more than just a symbolic act. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that it is an actual participation in the body and blood of Christ for our spiritual nourishment and for our growth in Christ. We are actually communing with Christ when we partake the elements in faith. And by virtue of our common union with Christ, we are united together in one body, a mystical body, the body of Christ Jesus. 
of which we are all members. And it is as the various members of this one body that we are testifying to and renewing our love for not just Christ, but for one another as well. That's part of what we're talking about when we speak about preparing ourselves for the Lord's table. Right? We, we prepare ourselves, we examine ourselves and make sure we're, we're in the right place. That doesn't mean that we are, we are perfect by any means. No, we, we come as those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, those who are needy and weak and wounded and sick and sore and those who are sinners, right? I love the third verse of come ye sinners poor and needy that we just sing. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him, right? We need to not think that we are perfect. We need to think we are needy because we are. And so that's the first thing. We, we come to the table trusting in Christ Jesus alone. Secondly, we come repentant of our sin, realizing that, that though he, he receives us just as we are, he does not leave us just as we are. We turn away from sin and turn to him and follow him dying to ourselves and finally, we examine and make sure that we are in fellowship with other believers, that our common union with Christ leads to a union with one another. One of the benefits that some churches have that take weekly communion is that when they take this seriously, they're constantly seeking to rectify and reconcile relationships that have been broken. Because they know they can't come to the table unless those relationships are made right. And as we come to the table today, may we truly experience it as a time of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. A time of refreshing from a world that is so often set against Christ Jesus. A time of refreshing from the weariness with which we wrestle with our own sin a time of refreshing from the brokenness of relationships that once were a blessing, but could be again. If we truly want this refreshment, this fellowship, this forgiveness, this love, it can only be found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so before we come to the table, you'll find in your bulletin, Questions one and two of the Heidelberg Catechism. As a statement of our faith, we proclaim those answers in unison now. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also washes over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing 
and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed blessed us with this sacrament, that we might have our faith strengthened and nourished by you, by your grace. Help us always to see our need of you and the fact that you fulfill that need completely. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elders, would you come forward?
in this moment here and now, what we do is partake of this, and we have uh, the words of the Apostle Paul, a proclamation of the Lord's death, whereby we as sinners and tax collectors are forgiven of our sins. We look back and see how he indeed died, but we also look forward to when we will be made perfect by him, when we will join in the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is a foretaste of that great and glorious day. And so to all who hope in Christ Jesus and in him alone, he says, take, eat, this is my body.
What can atone for all our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we rejoice in the fact that he has indeed shed his blood for us, his body broken for us, and now we sing hymn 196, At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing. If you're able, would you please rise? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 